sentence, the church is, and then they had to finish that. How, how do you think people would answer? And I obviously suspect you'd get a, a bunch of different answers, uh, you know, depending on the heart and the experience of the person that you're interviewing. Uh, some people might say the church is a dying organization. Others who are a little more cynical might say the church is a joke or the church is full of hypocrites or the church is irrelevant to modern uh, life. But others might say something like uh, the church is a building where people meet to learn about God or maybe if they uh, have a little more familiarity, they might say it's a, a place where they meet to worship. So how, how would you answer the question? The church is, and now you have to fill in the blank. What, what would you say? Or more importantly, how do you think God would answer that question? And actually, of course, we don't, we don't have to wonder how God would answer it because he, he tells us in his word. Uh, Jesus said that he was going to build his church, that he was going to use the church to reach the world, that there would be nothing that could stand against his church, and that someday he would be returning for his church. And if you took all of the things that the Bible teaches uh, about the church and, and you boil it down to a simple statement, it would be this. God says, the church is my people. But that, that's what the church is. The people who belong to me by reason of their faith in Jesus Christ, they are the church. Now, sometimes the church is scattered, right? Everybody's out in their families and their job and in their homes and community and doing their things. But sometimes the church is gathered, gathered into smaller groups like, like this group this morning uh, around the world for times of worship and, and this type of thing. But the church is God's people. And that's why so much of the New Testament is given uh, to giving us instructions as people about how we should live together as God's church. The Apostle Paul is just about to end this letter of 2 Corinthians. Uh, but before he does... He, he gives five just rapid-fire commands to us about living together as God's people. And they're all found in one verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, which says this, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful for the opportunities we've had this morning to worship you in, in various ways. But now we're looking for you, God, to, to challenge us, to instruct us, to fill our hearts. So we ask uh, that you would freely be able to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So there you have it. In, in, in one verse, you got five brief uh, succinct but very powerful instructions about living together as God's people. And th these are all written in the imperative mode, if you're you know, an English major type person, you like to know that, which basically means that they are commands. If you're in imperative mode, it's a command. This is not just you know, a few uh, lighthearted closing remarks that he's making, and they're definitely not uh, suggestions on you know, how to have a better life. These uh, are... Uh, things that we as believers 
must do. They're commands. They, they are, are meant for um, us to cultivate them in our lives. And again, I'd encourage you to, to think about what I had said last Sunday. All the commands of Scripture, whether they be the thou shalt not variety or the thou shalt variety, are, are given uh, for our good, our benefit, and our blessing. So this morning, we're going to take a look at these, these five rapid-fire commands. And the first one might seem just a little strange in terms of a thing to command, right? Verse 11 says, Finally, brethren, rejoice. And typically, we don't picture rejoicing as, you know, something you can command. We tend to think of it as something that just happens to you based on your feelings or whatever the circumstances are around you. Uh, When you try to command uh, rejoicing, it doesn't always work so well. I mean, does anybody here remember uh, when you were like a young child uh, and, and you were sad or upset about something and one of your parents comes to you and says something like, you will go to this, you will do this, and you'll be happy about it. <laughs> Trying to tell an unhappy kid that they should be happy generally doesn't go over all that well. Now, think about these Corinthians that Paul was writing to. He had to call some of them on the carpet for sinful actions and bad attitudes. He was dealing with friction and and division uh, amongst the church. And and on top of that, he he started this letter uh, by talking about the suffering that they, they were all experiencing. And we don't know if they were being persecuted by non-believers or it was just general suffering from uh, living in a, in a broken and fallen world or what, whatever the, the hardships were that they were facing. But clear back in chapter 1, Paul had said, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. This is the people he's talking to, right? Whatever trials they were facing, they had plenty of them. And now he commands them, rejoice. So how is it possible if you're going through an abundance of suffering and your church is less than perfect, which of course all churches are less than perfect, how is it possible to rejoice? Well, you know, the the norm for dealing with this, uh, at least in American churches, is that you accomplish this by pretending. Okay, Uh, you may be fighting with your kids all the way to church, but the minute you pull into the parking lot, uh, let's slap on a plastic smile and pretend that everything is okay because everything is hunky-dory in our family. I I, I don't even know what a hunky-dory is, but apparently it's, it's a good thing and it's in our family and we're smiling. And, and I get that, you know, there's a certain public protocol that you, you don't just air all your dirty laundry for everybody to see. I, I get that and understand that, but I hope you're understanding what I'm saying as well. Life can be hard, and, and maybe your marriage is struggling, or things aren't going well at work, or you're dealing with physical, intense physical, or, or maybe intense emotional uh, pain that makes each day a, a trial uh, or maybe you just can't seem to get a handle 
on that one particular sin that just keeps tripping you up and dragging you down or, or, or you're dealing with any other number of tribulations and you know that the Bible says rejoice and you figure everything must be fine with all the other Christians because they're all smiling and so it must only be you who's crushed under this, you know, this weight of suffering. So in order to fit in with everybody else, you'll slap a smile on your face and you'll pretend that everything is okay. Is that what Paul is asking us to do here? And of course, the answer is not hardly, right? If you read all of Paul's letters, you will find that he very strongly uh, promotes uh, the idea of, of honest, authentic, open relationships with one another, which obviously would preclude this uh, pretending to be happy when you're not happy idea. Uh, I mean, after all, Paul himself is the one who said in Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That only happens in the context of authentic relationships. So this command to rejoice does not mean you just plaster on uh, a smile even when the world seems to be crumbling beneath your feet. So instead, the, the biblical uh, idea of rejoicing is, is a state uh, of your heart that expresses itself in joyful uh, laughter when things are going good, but also expresses itself in confident optimism when life is tough, and even in an established peace or serenity when the sorrows of life hit. And you can attain this, this joyful heart, this rejoicing, not by gritting your teeth and trying harder, definitely not by pretending. Instead, you attain it by, by knowing something. Now, an example of, of what we know comes from James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a guy who knew a thing or two about uh, hardships and suffering and persecution. And, and he said in chapter 1, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing, here's the key word, right? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, these verses obviously could be a whole sermon in and of themselves, but the main point is very simple, right? You can count it joy, you can rejoice, as Paul says, because you know something. You know that God is at work through these difficulties, these hardships, these trials. And in particular, James is saying he's, what he's doing through them is he is maturing you in this process. Now, in other passages, there's other things we can learn that, that God is, is, is doing through this, but, but the point is still the same all the way through them. You rejoice because you know God is at your life, at work in your life, doing something. And when you know that, and you believe that, and you allow that to rule your heart and your emotions, it changes your perspective on life when you are facing these trials. It allows you to be happy and, and optimistic even in the midst of troubles. And again, this doesn't mean that there will not be times when there is weeping. We know there's weeping, but even that weeping will be tempered by this truth. God is at work for my good. And because of that, 
in your heart you can rejoice. Now, as I said, the Bible teaches more than, uh, than just that, that you can know of what God, um, why he allows hardships in your life and then allows you to rejoice. But, but that particular thought, God growing you to maturity, is, is a very good segue into the second command that uh, Paul gives us, which is this. He goes on to say, be made complete. Now, now the Greek uh, word that he uses there carries the idea of being put together in order or being repaired. Uh, it was used for the process of taking something that was out of adjustment and, and then readjusting it back into functioning order. So that was being made complete, getting, getting readjusted there. Or it, it was used if something had been torn or, or broken and, and the repairs used to fix that was called that word being made complete. Uh, for example, there's one time in the Gospels, you remember reading about the, the fishermen, the disciples, mending their nets. That word mending is being made complete. So Paul is telling them and, and telling us, of course, as well, to fix, to repair, to mend those things that may be out of adjustment or torn or broken apart in your life. And individually, what it usually referred to was, was making sure that your spiritual life and therefore the practical way that you live out your life was in complete conformity to God's word. That's how you adjust your life. You bring it into conformity to God's word. If there's anything that is out of adjustment compared to with the way God says uh, to do things, then that's something that needs to be taken care of. And of course, this is a a lifelong process for all of us. None of us have everything put together properly and biblically the way that we should. And, you know, as, as we think that we have one thing taken care of, then God brings something else uh, to our uh, attention, and, and we're working on that. And so there's this, this ongoing process of, of always having to work. And even something that we think we have a pretty good handle on, all of a sudden some new circumstances pop up, and it tests that again, and now we're back having to work on that again. It's this ongoing process that God uses. So, so we're always there, but it's the idea uh, of being made complete. It's not that we'd ever be perfect, but, but um, that we would uh, uh, be at a place where we're constantly growing in grace and responding positively to Scripture. That's being made complete. Uh, one commentator that I read this week, he put it this way, and I'll just quote him. He says, quote, as they, it's these Christians being made complete, as they grow in grace, they must constantly reevaluate their priorities, get their behavior in line with Scripture, and be re restored to spiritual wholeness. Theological errors need to be corrected. Biblical knowledge needs to be increased. Sin needs to be dealt with. Violated relationships need to be restored. Laziness, indifference, and apathy need to be turned into energetic devotion and service. That's what being made complete uh, means. And that's what God calls us to. That's his command here. Be made complete. But remember, it's, he's not just speaking to them individually here. He's speaking to them corporately as a church. And corporately in that church, there were some hurt feelings. There was division and schisms that had happened in the Corinthian congregation. There were people taking sides over the issue. Not over 
only over uh, Paul himself and the accusations that had been leveled against him, but also over issues of sin amongst church members. And, and some members had been mistreated. Some had been done wrong. And as, of course, is very common in any group, there were uh, times of misunderstanding and, and miscommunications that led to problems. And so important to God is, is this area of mending, of repairing these broken relationships that the last two commands in his series of five here deal with this specific issue. So I'm not, I'm not going to talk about it right here. We'll, we'll deal with that issue when we get to those last two commands. But before we get to those, Paul has one other one here. He says this, be comforted. Be comforted. And at first, this might seem just a little bit out of place, but again, remember their situation. These guys had not only been going through some tough times, the, the sufferings of Christ that were theirs in abundance, but they had also spiritually blown it, right? They, they had sinned. Some repented sooner than others, but by and large, the, the vast majority of the congregation had fallen prey to one of Satan's lies. They, 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 a false teacher had come in and, and gotten them off track and, and caused them to turn their back on the simplicity and purity of, of devotion to Christ, they had stumbled and fallen. And chances are, they're a lot like us when that happens. You only know, stumble, fall, repent. And we have this tendency when we do that to really beat ourselves up. We berate ourselves and talk about what rotten Christians we must be. And maybe you get this sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach, man, that I'm never going to get this right, and I'm, I'm never uh, going to make this through. And, and these are the people who had, in their wrong, had really hurt Paul. But now here's Paul telling them, it's going to be okay. Uh, you're going to make it. Be comforted. And, and that word comforted, it can also be translated as encouraged or, or built up. Even though they had stumbled badly and some of them were still struggling mightily, there was hope for them in this Christian journey. And do you know why? Because Paul knew that it wasn't up to them and about them and their power and ability to be made complete or to get it right. It was because Christ was at work in them. He could tell them the same thing that he later wrote to the Philippians, the verse that Bonnie shared with us this morning from Philippians 1.6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the same reason that we can be encouraged, built up or comforted, even in the middle of our struggles and in the middle of our sometime failures. You're not perfect. You blew it, but God's grace is greater than your sin and failure, and he can help you stand again. So be comforted. This is really a command to not give up the hope. And from there, Paul moves in to give those two instructions that deal directly with the issue of Christian brotherhood and the, the unity and the harmony that he desires for us to experience within the local body of Christ. So look at what he commands. Be like-minded, live in peace. Now, that Greek phrase, to be like-minded, literally means 
think the same thing. Now, when I first read that, I mean, that creates a question right away in, in, in my mind, right? I mean, is this a command that is telling us that we should all be and think exactly the same, you know, like clones? We're all clones. When I was in, in college, there was a song that this guy put out sarcastically called, I Want to Be a Clone, uh, and about this high ideal that churches teach you have to think exactly the same thing like that uh, should we all have uh, uh the same preferences the same likes and dislikes the same tastes in music the same tastes in hairstyles and biblical translations right should we all automatically agree on what color the carpet should be in the nursery because we all think the same thing is that what this is? I mean, that, that's what it sounded like at first. So I did a little digging into this phrase, and, and like-minded actually has a, a different connotation than that. It doesn't mean that we should all think exactly the same thoughts. I mean, God made us as individuals. What it means is that we would have the same commitment to the truth. Uh, you know, along with thinking the same thing, this, this phrase can also be translated as have the same convictions or the same beliefs. In, in other words, this is a commitment for us to be fully, com- or a command for us to be fully committed to what the Word of God teaches. A, a commitment that goes beyond just mere mental assent to what God's Word teaches to, to practicing it. So, so what does being like-minded, what does that command look like in real life? I'm glad you asked that question. I, I, I think I'd like to answer that. Let's take, uh, as an example, the, the future expansion uh, building plans here, just, uh, just as a quick example. There's no doubt that there will be many different ideas and preferences about almost every aspect uh, of what this building will be like. Uh, one example could be something as simple as carpet and will you have it or not? You know, I mean, on the one hand, carpet is kind of nice. It looks homey. It's uh, it's pretty, you know, and, and and is inviting this type of thing. But on the other hand, it gets dirty real easy. It holds germs and chemicals uh, that can be a problem for people. Uh, it it uh, uh, wears out faster and therefore needs to be replaced. So it ends up costing more down the road. This type of thing. And, and you know what? No matter what. Arguments are used. There's going to be people with preferences on both sides. Some will be strongly yes. Some will be strongly no uh, on this type of thing. What does it mean to be like-minded? Well, it means that we would apply Scripture because we all hold that as our guide and authority for life. And before you ask, no, the Bible does not have any verses that talk about what flooring there should be in church uh, buildings. But it does teach us things like do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. You see, that means that I can't selfishly hold on to my preference just because I like it. And beyond that, it means that I have to work to see the other person and their preferences and their point of view and perhaps even their needs, as more important than myself. That's what the verse says. 
And then the passage goes on to say, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That means I can't fight for my own personal preferences and what I want. Instead, I need to look at what the other person likes, what they're wanting to say, why, why I'm trying to understand their point of view. And guess what? If everybody does that, that changes personal preferences from becoming a fight to a chance to become like-minded. And that's just two verses, right? There's a lot more scripture that tells us how we should interact with one another. The point is, being like-minded does not mean that we think all exactly the same thoughts, like some program androids, but that we have the same commitment to scripture that will guide our lives, our actions, and our decisions. And that leads right into the final uh, command, the last one, which is live in peace. You know, we have a lot of things that war against our ability to live in peace. There's sin, which causes other people to say and do stupid things that hurt us. And if we're honest, <laughs> causes us sometimes to say and do stupid things that hurt others. Then there's cultural differences, social differences, background and training differences. That all make it hard for us to, to get along. And then you add on to it the, the things we were just talking about, you know, like personal preferences and likes and dislikes. And it's no wonder that he has to command, live in peace. This is a plea for unity, for harmony. And remember, this was given to the local church. He's talking about in your fellowship, your, your congregation. And people are the same today as they were back then, right? All those things I just listed, they threaten our ability to live in peace with one another. And the easy thing to do is to say, well, I'll live in peace with some people, you know, the easy people, the ones I like, and I'll just ignore the rest. That's close enough to living in peace, right? If, if I just live in peace with these and ignore the others, isn't that good enough? But that's not exactly what God has called us to do, Right? Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live uh, or be at peace with all men. Guess what? All means everybody, not just the ones we like or think are easy. So the only way to do that in a messy world where sin and hurt is a reality is to choose forgiveness, to choose to reach out in reconciliation, to choose to do the hard work of building a relationship when it would be easier to ignore or to walk away. It means being the one willing to say, I don't care who's at fault or who started it. I want to be the one to start the healing process. Because I want healing. I want this harmony. I want unity and peace. I want the freedom that it brings to my heart and my emotions. And I want to be obedient to what Christ has called. Now, of course, the if possible in that verse, it does remind us that it may not be 
possible with everybody. There, there might be some people who you reach out to, who you take these steps of trying to build reconciliation, and they do not respond or do not respond positively. And I don't mean to be harsh or anything like that, but in situations like that, you have to understand that's, that's their problem, not, not yours. But here's the deal. You'll never know if it's possible unless you try. And so this is the command for us to be willing to try. So there you have it. Five rapid-fire commands. And guess what? They're all hard. And maybe you're thinking, what was Paul thinking doing this right at the end? (laughs) Here he is closing this letter, and then he heaps this load of demands and expectations on us. And maybe it even ignites a sense of guilt feelings in you because of uh, knowing it's just not good enough or maybe even a sense of despair because you're wondering, how, how is this even possible? How, how can I ever accomplish all this? It, it seems too hard. I'm, I'm in situations where that's just not going to work and I can't do it. And that's actually the key point to understand. It is too hard for us. That's why we need Jesus. And that's the good news of the gospel. The gospel is not only about Jesus Christ saving us. It's about him empowering us and transforming us to live out these things. Notice the last phrase of this verse. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, you have to make sure you read that carefully so that we don't misunderstand it. He does not say, do all of these things and then the God of love and peace will be with you. This is not an if-then statement. This is an explanation of how the preceding five commands can even be possible. In this messy world, you can rejoice Because the God of love and peace will be with you. No matter what you're facing, no matter what trial you're you're dealing with, no matter what hardship you're going through, you will be made complete because the God of love and peace will be with you in your brokenness, in your stumbling, in your falling. You, you can experience comfort, encouragement, building up because the God of love and peace will be with you in the trials and tribulations of this world. It, you might be noticing there's a pattern here. You can be like-minded, even with people who are so very different than you because the God of love and peace will be with you. And you can, we can all live in peace. Why? Because the God of love and peace will be with you. He makes it possible. That's The gospel message. That's why we come to Jesus Christ. Yeah, we can't do these things, but he 
does them in us and through us. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel. What God commands, he powers. So please, don't just look at the commands this morning. Look at Jesus Christ, the God of love and peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that these things that you have given us for the strengthening of the body, for the benefit and good of our lives, these things you accomplish in us because of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that you are with us, that you fill us with your love, that you give us your peace to be able to rejoice be made complete, be comforted, to be like-minded, and to live in peace. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.